0: The Seahawks' quest to regain the top spot in the NFC West continues as the NFL inches ever closer to the draft. So where does Seattle stand as teams hone in on incoming prospects? The Athletic's Jordan Rodrigue joins us for a team-by-team breakdown of the entire division. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and this is the Cigar Thoughts podcast. We are without my beautiful producer, Mike Barwin, today as he continues to mourn the loss of Travis Homer, but we plunge ever fearlessly into that good night because we have a very exciting guest with us today. She is a football storyteller for The Athletic, the co-host of the Eleven Personnel podcast, and focuses her coverage on the Los Angeles Rams. She is the author of the recent Brilliant Feature on the Rise, Fall, and Potential Resurgence of Sean McVay. And she's sitting down with us today to go deep on the state of the NFC West. She is Jordan Rodrigue. Jordan, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me. That was an awesome intro. I feel, re- I feel really good about myself after listening to that thing. Yeah, wait, you, you guys can't see us, but I'm like slowly breaking into this massive grin. I'm like, dang, I sound good on this show.
0: Yeah. Well, it's because you are good. We, we wouldn't have you on otherwise.
1: I'm stoked to be here.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, and, and you're coming in hot from the owners meetings, right? What was that like?
1: Yes, I'm coming in hot, and my skin is so dry from the desert of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, <laughs> from the owners' meetings, yeah, it's um, so. For those who don't quite, who don't know what the annual league meetings are, I know you guys go in depth on all kinds of stuff on on this podcast, but um, it's basically all the owners and their private security staff, and their PR teams, and all of the coaches and all of their PR staffs and. Um, all of the GMs, they assemble and descend upon the Biltmore in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Why the Biltmore? Because of the golf, I'm told. So uh, they descend upon the Biltmore um, every year. Uh, They kind of rotate between this and some fancy resort in Florida. And they vote on matters about the league. And so this is really interesting because it's over the course of a few days and the vote happens at the very end. But it's kind of like this big um, sort of lobbying session prior to that. So teams will have sort of like soft launches and pitches of different rules that they're proposing in various committees. The NFL loves a committee. And um, then they'll sort of lobby. They'll use the next couple of days lobbying day, night. There are lots of cocktails that are had. Um, There's lots of interesting dynamics between coaches and and staffs and owners. And um, it it is. And then there's media there. Obviously, a a small group goes. I mean, it's not small in comparative to uh, what the event is, but relative to many of the other events, such as a combine, et cetera, it's a a little bit more of a niche. And um, yeah, we kind of just are are in the mix with all of it. And you get to learn lots of secrets, which I love every year um, because Something about the atmosphere, the golf, the sun, the pool, the drinks, like something about that just gets people talking, you
0: know, (laughs) totally. Well, and and, I mean, it's (laughs) rare to get all of these owners in one place, right? I mean, we're talking about how often on this planet are 30 plus billionaires in the same room. With each other and in the right. same area and having those drinks and playing those golf rounds. And it's got to be really cool to be a fly on the wall for all of that. You mentioned some secrets. Don't say anything you can't say, but <laughs> was there anything that came out of there? You're like, oh, actually, I can kind of hang, hang my trip on learning that.
1: Yeah, well, things that have yet to be revealed via some Uh of the stories over at theathletic.com in the coming months, but (laughs) some really just some cool moments. Um, One that I was thinking about in sort of prepping to come on this show was there's a, uh, first of all, it does not feel good necessarily to be around that many billionaires. Um, <laughs> you feel like very underdressed the entire time. Um, sure. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I was, I was saying it's probably the most secure building on the planet for that period of time. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that you think they're probably security, but like, maybe they're not, but they're they are but they're not or like you know plants like people who are like planted there to look normal like they're guests at the resort right. and yeah. you're like wow you've probably you've probably like you, you know been a hitman somewhere or whatever like <laughs> you know it's you you have these thoughts where you're like oh my god this is probably the most secure building they make you wear a certain color lanyard and i changed mine because i didn't want to be identified as blaring media media sure, media yeah, the so enemy. i changed mine from like this bright red that they gave us and turn it to a black lanyard, just like innocuous and thought it was like nothing. And they found, they tracked me down and found like the, the NFL's head of security Tracked ah. me down and said, can you change back to the red lanyard? Very nice about it. But basically, <laughs> uh-huh. it was like, you will never be found if you don't. Yeah, they're,
0: <laughs> they're nice the first time. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so I But anyway, something really cool, as I was thinking about the, for the purpose of this show. So there's a cocktail party uh, that the NFL throws. It's a very lavish event. It's outside at the, the, the pool and, and bar area um, in the courtyard of the Biltmore. And it's every year they throw it for media and for coaches and GMs and for um, the owners that are there. And various, you know, their their entourages and all of that, and um, so they this they always they're really mean because they always make the NFC coaches do their seven a.m. press conferences the morning after. It's an open bar, <laughs> and so and it goes well into the early hours of the next morning. And I'm so sure. it's basically like NFC people are built different, right? Because we uh-huh. can handle this and we can do this, and that's why all the NFC coaches are are built a little bit different than the AFC coaches. But then. But what's really cool is, um, you know, I was I was up at the the bar area, and um, Sean McVeigh and John Schneider are going over plays on bar napkins together. They're like so geeking cool. out, having the best time. Everyone really <laughs> likes John, by the way. Like he, people think he's he like seems de- life generally, of the party, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know there's like some like he, he, in that setting, yes. I know there's some been some tough business de- decisions and all of, of that. But like in terms of that environment. It was really interesting to watch. Like, I mean, they just, and they were, literally, they borrowed the bartender's pen and they were drawing out these different <laughs> plays real. and like just talking talking ball and just having a great time knocking back drinks like drawing plays on bar <laughs> napkins and it was oh, so really good. really cool it's such a casual organic environment to really geek out over football with your buddies and your colleagues who you respect and then it's funny too because then you see who sort of casually but intentionally stays away from each other and like uh-huh, who sits on uh-huh. the other side of the bar and doesn't pretend they don't see anyone and like all this stuff and it's 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 a very interesting dynamic but I did get a kick out of watching that because It's, it just was really, it was just fun. And you feel like you're sort of catching a glimpse of something really cool that never happens in real life with, with any of these guys, because they're so competitive with each other all the time. But in that setting, everyone loosens up a
0: little bit. I love that. I love that. You know, when you were talking about the security that were probably hitmen at some point, it reminded me of just one of my favorite, most random kind of football stories about the Bosa's grandfather, you know, about this. I don't think I do. He was Al Capone's personal security.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently. That's a big uh, job. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big job. Apparently, Capone saw him uh, dispose of somebody while he was working security at a pool hall that Capone was in. It was like, that's my guy and hired him. And he actually, after Capone got arrested, took over operations for the Chicago mob. That's the Bosa's grandfather.
1: Oh, <laughs> Okay,
0: so, <laughs> so it's not like anyone was gonna mess with Nick or Joey already. So they but-
1: found, found healthier hobbies, is what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah.
0: they found hobbies. Yeah, I wouldn't hobbies. be surprised if they're still connected though. <laughs> oh
1: my god, I did not know that. That's insane. <laughs>
0: yeah, you can look it up. It is. It's wild. Uh, that's really cool that you got a chance to go there. I appreciate you kind of giving us a peek behind the veil as to what happened. I especially love that story with Schneider and McVeigh. Um, you know, the main reason we want to have you on is kind of take a closer look at this division at large. But before we do that, I got to ask you about a very special player, one that holds a unique place among Seahawks fans. Even when compared to the other greats of the last decade, you got to cover Bobby Wagner last year. It was such a bizarre feeling for us to not only see Wagner on a different team, but to see him on that team playing against Seattle twice. What did you see from Bobby when he was with the Rams and what sort of impact did he have on that team?
1: Yeah, well, impact on everybody he was around. First of all, as a person and a player, like so. I'm going to sound really cheesy, but I guess it's a safe space because everyone loves Bobby Wagner. <laughs> like so, yeah, it's a safe yeah, space for me to sound really cheesy about this like an extraordinary person. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've been really lucky to cover a lot of great players in LA. They've got, they've had their Super Bowl team had like three future Hall of Famers on the roster, and it, and and, the, and in the front, you know, the coaching staff, whatever. And um, Bobby is the most extraordinary person I have ever covered in my entire career. Um, You know, he day one stepped in and you just knew the way that he carries himself, the way that he approaches others, the way that he interacts with teammates, with media, with coaches. You know, he's sitting in their business meetings um, with, you know, members of the executive board The first week he's there in L.A. because he's interested in owning a a team someday. And it's just like, it's just, it was such a privilege. And you always knew, like for me, I made the most out of every conversation we had because I knew it wasn't going to be for long that he was there. I mean, I know he signed the multi-year deal, but there's such poetry in his, um, there's a magnetic pull for him back to Seattle because that's the place where he grew up as an adult, right? Right. And I did a, a lot of work with him on a on a big feature about his first, you know, where he did his first growing up, which was L.A. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, where his mom is buried. And, um, you know, she's buried um, about 400 yards from the field at SoFi wow. Stadium in Inglewood Cemetery. And I so didn't know that. that was one of the things that that was one of the things that pulled him to L.A. when he was deciding what to do, because he knew he would be close to her and and her as as you know his spirituality talking about her as if she is still with us and but it but on a spiritual plane and and just really powerful conversations with this guy it, covering him changed my life I mean it really is wow. like you you are you can allow yourself to be impacted by people that you come across knowing that you won't really know them for a long time or you you you'll know them forever but you won't be around them for maybe a long time and bobby is one of was one of those people is one of those people for me where i every single day i learn something from him and i think that is a if you allow yourself to be changed by truly extraordinary people then really, really cool things happen in life. And that's what Bobby has been. And I know that sounds really, really cheesy to say, but like, no, it doesn't. it's, you, I mean, every Seattle, I'm talking to Seattle fans, like you guys know this, <laughs> like we, you guys we do. all know this. We do. We've had,
0: <laughs> we, we've been fortunate to have a number of the members of the Seattle beat on the show. And, you know, many of them have talked about how oh, you don't get attached to these players. They understand that you're doing your job. You understand that you're doing your job. They're doing their job and it's professional and all that stuff. They are all unabashed in their admiration of Bobby Wagner, how we referred to them by name, all of these things like there was there was a closeness a familiarity mm-hmm. with him that, uh, you know, this Seattle in the past decade, up until the last really two, three years, had a lot of roster continuity year over year with their top players and none of them. Seem to have made a connection with the people following the team like Bobby had. So it's really cool that even in just such a short period of time, he had a similar effect on you and I'm, I'm sure other people covering that team.
1: Oh yeah. We loved him. And, and it was like day one, he came in and acted like he knew us all because he'd also, by the way, had done his research on all of us. Like he knew when we started our careers, he knew the arc of our, he could tell you probably three or four stories, big stories that each of us, I mean, he really, The thing that is really cool that I don't and I think this is something that Seattle writers say, too, about Bobby is like Bobby is one of the most special football players of our generation. And at the same time, he also has allowed people to see his process. That is such a freaking gift. If you love football, if you love the game, if you love to know why things work and how they work. To be able to see the process of how a player of his caliber goes about their business every single day, but in a way that he's not, if you want to see it, it's there. He'll let you, like, it, and, but he's not like in your, you know, he just, he just is him. And so, but to see that, to have that, even for like a year, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I feel like I just got a PhD in football covering this guy for a mm-hmm. year um and and it's really special that someone is so open and allowing you know others to see how he operates and how he works because we don't you know hall of famers you know uh, in history you there you you sort of feel separated from them in some ways but bobby would be like yeah this is how i study film you want to you want to talk about it it's like (laughs) what you know you just it's just cool like i'd ask him i'm like what do you start with what do you like what tendent? do you, what tendencies do you look for? And he, he literally just is so open about because nobody can do it like him. So it's right. like, there's no proprietary competitive information because even if you do it in the same steps that he's taking, you can't do it like him. So, and he know there's like the security there with it. It just is really, he was phenomenal to cover really, really awesome. Person. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. is, he is to me, Mr. Seahawk and you know, that, that last little tidbit you just shared Reminds me of a story I heard about Mariano Rivera, you know, basically was a Hall of Fame closer throwing one pitch. He threw that cutter. Knew it was coming, couldn't hit it. And he talked about other pitchers, you know, coming in and being like, hey, can you teach me that pitch? Can you teach me that pitch? And he's like, most pitchers won't do that because they know you might go to another team, all this kind of stuff. He's like, I had no problem teaching, showing people how I threw that pitch because they weren't going to throw it (laughs) like me. (laughs) exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's such a good comp because it is, it's like – it, it was just it's just like that where like yeah you know linebacker X Y and Z they could they could d- take all the same steps he didn't like follow it step for step his career and how he's worked out how he's studied how he's done you know absorbed, process the game doesn't matter he's just in that different plane where um, yeah it's I'm so I was really happy for him I was t- I texted him after the everything went in with Seattle and I was I was just like this was supposed this was sort of supposed to happen it was another. you know another step in your journey there's this magnetism from Seattle that I know he feels and you know his friends are there a lot of his families you know it's just really very very cool to see this um sort of come full circle in a way that I think to me and like Seattle effed it up the first time obviously that's a John Schneider thing (laughs) but like but the thing was was like they weren't too proud to sort of admit they had effed up, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think that organizations, it's only, it's for the really, truly special people that the people with the biggest egos on the entire planet in the biggest sport, you know, in in America are like saying, okay, yeah, hey, we messed up. Let's make this right kind of a thing. So that was kind of cool to see that too.
0: Yeah, it, it's so rare for a player to transcend a rivalry like the one that the Seahawks and the Rams have formed over the last couple of decades, and and it just speaks to how special he is. Now, I do want to get into this division with you, though. Yes, this is one that for the last ten years or so, it's been one of the toughest in football. It it was it was a punchline before then, right? Seattle getting in with a losing record one year, and and eight and eight, I think, won the division a couple years later. But last year, the 49ers won the division fairly comfortably. Uh, your Rams did the same the year before en route to a Super Bowl championship. Seahawks claimed the title the season before that. As we head towards the 2023 campaign, all three of those teams have varying levels of playoff aspirations, while the Cardinals are busy charging their <laughs> players for trail mix in the Ch- back somewhere. Ch- Chaos team. <laughs> Chaos team. Yeah. Yeah. My God. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to get your um, kind of higher level thoughts on the division as a whole later on. But before we do, I do want to go team by team with you, so we can all have a deeper understanding of everyone's division rivals. And I want to start with your team, uh, right in your backyard, with the Los Angeles Rams. As you so eloquently detailed in your McVay piece, this team took one of the largest steps backward the modern NFL has ever seen. Uh, for those who have missed the article, how did the Rams go from a Super Bowl winning juggernaut to five and twelve in such a short period of time?
1: Yeah, a confluence of sort of uh, coincidental and circumstantial things, such as injuries, combined with deep personal crisis <laughs> um, from some of the people in leadership positions. Uh, no greater crises than the one had by Sean McVay. Um, Sort of the, when people say, oh, the Rams went and bought, their Super Bowl, they went all in one year, and then they're paying the debt back, they're paying the price for it. I think that's a little bit of a lazy take because um, they they methodically, over the course of five years, went to two Super Bowls and won one. The, the last year that they did win, they were in that position to push through that final layer of contention. So teams who are, are built and exist to you know be postseason contenders, they meaning they're not sort of um, competing in the framing of a league that wants everybody to be eight and nine or nine and eight or you know whatever it is now. The odd numbers still freaks me out. Yeah, I um, and the, <laughs> it, the league is built to encourage and almost you know magnetically pull people back down into parity. And there are a select few teams, and the Rams for you know five years were under the under, in the beginning in the rise of the McVay era, era. They were a team that was not satisfied with that so they had to find ways to push against that structure of the league and they did it in a lot of ways they did it um, in using cash over cap methodology and they did it by uh, acquiring superstar talent and high stakes picks for players trades that stretched their team build and their ecosystem really thin but as long as they were drafting at a certain percentage hit rate with players who were complementary to the star player skill sets and as long as Sean McVay was continuing to coach and scheme at the highest level um, though, and they, and they were healthy, by the way, that was a big one that nobody ever really talked about until they weren't. Um well, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. You guys
0: had the, you guys had the fewest games missed to injury for five in years league. for five it's in, years. It's insane. Yeah. And, and you know, injuries, there's a ton of variance in that, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, if, if a guy gets his leg hit by two, 300 pounders going opposite directions, it the leg's going to give, I don't care who your training staff is, but, the ability of that team to get guys back quickly mm-hmm. to prevent injuries over five years, half a decade. That's not just variance anymore. That yeah. that does speak to like a franchise priority towards yeah. player health that I've always admired.
1: Yeah. The outlier became the five and 12 season because of how hurt they were. They were like historically hurt. Yeah. <laughs> like they yeah. Historically hurt. So that was, that's part of it. But in terms of their build and then, at a certain point, that ecosystem is going to break, right? It's mm-hmm. too fast and frenetic of a pace to sustain as humans, right? And that's where some of the really interesting qualities of what happened to them last year come in, because yes, they were historically hurt. But also, Sean McVay was not coaching the way that he's coached before. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't He wasn't prepared scheme-wise. Um, they weren't prepared to sort of meet the NFL's next moment. They made emotional decisions in some of the extensions they did right after the Super Bowl, and then also their moves in free agency when they they sort of panic pivoted. When they lost Von Miller, they pivoted, you know, Cooper Cup and Matthew Stafford encouraged Sean to go sign Allen Robinson, and he did. And it was all and, and obviously Bobby Wagner, who's the only good thing about their team last year, by yeah, the way. Right. And right. so and so, but those two positions, inside linebacker and receiver, in in terms of free agency acquisitions, are outside their previous model. So it was totally. kind of like they were caught between what they thought they needed to be next. They sort of like got caught between the door inside and out, and the door slammed and shoom, cut them right in half. And it's like I'm like getting ready to go see John Wick, so this is gonna be good. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, so it's like a terrible visual, right? But it's like they were so hurt, and then Sean McVeigh lost his uh, his it, you know, like his yep. his special sauce, and it was it was in part because all of the things that he'd been putting off and putting off and putting off about himself that were missing, lacking, he he'd, he'd uh, sort of destroyed along the way. Um, all of it catches up when you don't have winning to hide behind. And so yeah. he sort of spiraled in at a certain point, he wasn't even calling plays. And um, it was really a striking rock bottom for all of them together, because as they, for go, all of us too, yeah, honestly, yeah. It, was stu- outside outside it was stunning. Looking yeah. At,
0: yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. We were praying on the downfall. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I did not expect it to happen so abruptly, so swiftly. And, and I have, all the faith in the world in McVay. He is easily a top five coach in my mind and probably higher. But you know, I, I do want to tip my hat though. Also, the purpose of all of this at the end of the day is to fucking win Super Bowls. And I I like the less need fuck them picks approach. <laughs> you know, yes, it's it's not forever sustainable. We saw we saw the Saints take the same approach over a very similar timeline. Uh, they never got there. I mean, they they did a long time ago with, you know, prime Drew Brees, but they were really trying to extend that window. Uh, Seattle did the same thing, right? To try and keep the Legion of Boom together and keep extending Russell Wilson and keep Marshawn Lynch there. And, and all of these, you know, when, when you do load up with all pros and future hall of famers, they're expensive. And one of the beauties of the NFL is that it's a hard cap league. And so you got to get creative and, and cash over cap is a great way to do it, but it, it has an expiration date. And, you know, I got to think that if you went back to uh, Rams fans when Sean McVay got hired and said, hey, here's how the next five years are going to go, and then it's going to crash and burn, and you're going to be stuck with some big contracts on older players, you're not going to have draft picks, blah, 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 everything y'all are facing right now, I got to think 10 out of 10 Rams fans take that. Two Super Bowl appearances, one championship. It's all worth the parade, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, and that's something I have heard from Rams fans too. Is like, you know, now that this past year is over, because I think everyone was just sort of stunned. I mean, there's a great Aaron Donald quote from the middle of the season where he's like, "This is shocking to us, like that this is happening." They thought they would they would at least still be able to extend this window through twenty twenty three. Um, And the structure of those extensions they did do sort of outlined all of that. Like you can look at the contract structure and you can see that they expected to still be in their contention window. So now, but now instead, you know, there's a a hard crash. And then what's interesting that they're doing that maybe the Saints have not done, even though they are a cash over cap team, um, is they're taking on all of the hurt right now and have clean and in the green books for 2024 when i think that's when they'll start to be super aggressive and it's interesting too jackson because like they don't think they're going to be bad next year i mean you look at the roster and you're like what the hell man like right? you don't have you have 45 players on your roster you need 90. Right? like you, by right? the time training game comes, they have 45 players sitting on their roster right now and like no aaron donald and that's it on defense and and you're looking and, and a bunch of guys on rookie deals and and Matthew Stafford and, and Cooper, and, and you're sitting there and you're like, what, how can you think that, but like genuinely that is one tidbit from league meetings. Like I had a chance to look at all of these people in the face and be like, are you serious? <laughs> and yeah. they are, they absolutely believe because they're gonna basically try to be like a perimeter shooting basketball team. Like. They're not right. going to play. De- they're not going to play defense, and it's gonna they just—it's so going to be so weird. They're not going to play because they've had a great defense for like oh 18. yeah, a terrifying yeah. defense. And 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 they're just going to just shoot threes all day, and it's Love just it. like they're going to try to score forty five when other teams score forty two. Like Love it's that. just going to be cr- it's going to be wild, and I think they truly think that they are going to be comp- competing and we we're going to talk I know about the rest of the the conference but it's like th- they truly think that they're going to be competing in the NFC West in 2023 and I'm like okay no but you like have let to. me put both hands on your shoulders and stare you right in the eyes bro are you serious yeah dead serious and I'm a good I'm a good bullshit detector like a yeah. lot of time covering this team a lot of time in the NFL like I'm a good bullshit detector these guys legitimately think they are going to be a reasonably good football team, if not a like competing for the post for a postseason spot. I'm like, and so I'm wrapping my head around that, you know, but it's like, Hey, it's, I've seen them do crazier shit, right? Like, honestly,
0: you don't have to look any further than the Seahawks last year. This is exactly what everyone was saying about Seattle after the Russell Wilson trade. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're tearing it down to the studs. They're rebuilding multi-year, whatever. And at no point, I mean, it was almost galling to hear, player after player, coach after coach express unrelenting optimism about the 2022 season when everyone was picking them to win between three <laughs> and five games and, and they fucking did it. They came out and they, they did it. You know I mean? Granted they had some assets available to them via through the draft that the Rams don't currently have, but you don't get, it's easy to forget that in the NFL, these are alphas of the alphas, right? Like you go to a, a D one, you go to an sec school, Everybody in that locker room is just a killer, right? And these are the guys that made it up out of that agogi to the NFL. And then, especially with the Rams, having been to the mountaintop of that, I mean, we are talking about the baddest dudes on the planet, Yeah, you know, they're they're not going to have their confidence shaken easily. And that's a good thing. You got to have that resilience because, you know, the NFL, it's, it's not like a baseball or basketball season where you've got 80 or 160 data points. You got 17, to, you know, you you get 17 performances, so each one carries super high leverage on on how things are going to go for your team and the way these guys have to be able to get themselves up for it. You know, we we saw it in Seattle last year. I am not counting the Rams out. I'm just not. And it, and it comes down to McVeigh, honestly. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, you still have some good players. If, if Stafford is back to being who he was, if Cup stays healthy, Aaron Donald's going to be Aaron Donald. That's enough to win games. You know, how many, we'll see, but I'm not expecting another five-win season out of you guys. Yeah,
1: I actually am not either, and I think it's interesting cuz it's it's kind of what we talked about before. It's like what worked about their model, again, health, the health being the biggest thing, but like when what worked about their model is they only did at any point other than the Super Bowl year, they only at, at any point had three or four big big players at premium positions. And the rest of the roster was not only schemed, but also coached to compliment when the coaching and the scheming dropped off injuries aside in a vacuum, you could see they were not prepared to meet the league where it was at. And it was really, it's interesting because I do believe that Sean McFay, especially now that he's just doing a lot better personally and like actually did a lot of self-reflection and is on a track in my, in my opinion, that is a lot healthier than where he has been. And yeah. so I think that Um, That really is a big part of it is getting back to when you have a, you know, outlier players for the positive at three premium positions or four because they'll bring in a pass rusher at some point, then, you know, you can complement, you can build a roster around those players if you have an elevated scheme, and if you are hitting your draft picks that you do have in the in the right way. And one thing too, before we go, move on to the other teams too, because um, I know I'm rambling at this point. So cut me off anytime. Oh, um, I will. You're doing great <laughs> now. This is I'm loving so this. It's so it's you just, keep going. It's it's I ha, you know when I'm sitting. So the previous to the prime uh, lurking and secret learning event that is NFL owners meetings. It's another prime and a lot messier uh, secret learning event, which is the NFL combine. And I'm, I'm sitting, so the Rams, their top brass, they are like their public facing brass, Les and Sean, they don't go, but they have people that go there and, um, are sort of in the shadows. Right. So that's, that's where I am. I'm trying to be in the shadows too. And an executive did tell me when I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, across from them at, at the table. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, cause they're starting to, Sort of communicate what they think their plan might be, and as a group, they've settled upon this strategy and all this stuff. And I'm sort of like, wait, seriously? Kind of mode at that point, like Uh yes. And and uh, multiple people in that front office have said to me, "Yeah, look what the Seahawks did last year." And I think that's so fascinating because then you fast forward a couple of months, or a month, or time has no meaning, so I don't know. But like a month, (laughs) and it's a flat circle. It's a flat circle. And then you fast forward, and you're you're you're. I'm watching. Sean and John chop it up, it, just like it, it, things are starting to make sense to me. Patterns are starting to unfold of these certain parallels that we find in a cyclical league of, yeah, look what they did. Look what look what your Seahawks did last year. You know, the Rams yep. are sort of, I think that was a, a lesson for a lot of teams in the league about what good coaching can do, what good scheme can do, um, and what sort of, um, you know, when you have no expectations, how how free you can play and how free you can be as a team um, when nobody is expecting you to do anything good, you know. That's
0: it. Yeah. That's exactly it. You know, S- Seattle took advantage of the opportunity to do a full reset, right? They had their post-breakup glow up. And instead of, you know, eating Ben and Jerry's in their they got, a the couch, they got,
1: they a got a revenge body. they got a revenge body.
0: They absolutely <laughs> did out there just thirst trapping on the gram I know.
1: yeah they had their insta and their fake insta and they were like shirtless oh, yeah. in both yeah that's yeah, it. yeah 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 they had this instagram
0: going everything absolutely yeah i'm not i'm not putting it past mcveigh and and the rams you know once you get a taste of winning it's it's tough to go away from that so uh, i i i do anticipate two more difficult games against the rams this year for seattle i expect I expect eight wins, at least, from you guys. It's way too early to say. There's just too much top-end talent, uh, both in the coaching staff and and on that roster. But right now, there is a new bully on the block. San Francisco 49ers, look, every bit as intimidating now as that Rams championship team did two years ago. And last year, I thought they had one of the three best rosters in the NFL. And that looks to remain the case in 2023. What stands out to you the most when you're looking at the Niners?
1: They are... Last year, they did everything the Rams did in 2021 to, again, push through that final level of contention. The picks for players trade, they were super bold, super aggressive um, with the McCaffrey trade and outbid the Rams, ironically, which was a wake-up call for the Rams and, and understanding that they had now been priced out of their own market. And teams who are now adopting their methods um, had more resources than them. So they kind mm-hmm. of, it was a huge wake-up call for them, that, that entire bidding war for McCaffrey. And... What I think the 49ers are is um, if they had, you know, the quarterback situation, their health has, they have been perennially injured. So at a certain point, you really shine a light on the coaching, the scheme, the talent of the premium positions that they do have, and how everything really is so interconnected in their ecosystem that when they decide it's time to, um, reset, uh, you know, because I think they've got they've this they have to they have to win this. They've done so much. It, it's like you know, if the Rams hadn't have won the Super Bowl in in 2021, we're sitting here and we're like, holy cow, that's a disaster. You yeah. know, they've oh, they've, yeah. they've depleted all of these resources that they've done X, Y, and Z. All of these crazy high stakes moves just to lose in the Super Bowl again. Um, you know, you're you're you know talking people off ledges at that point, right? And so I think that the 49ers, I think they've got a very real understanding of what their window of contention is and how they're going to get there. And a lot of it, I think, it will be really, really dependent on how Brock Purdy comes back from that surgery, on what Trey Lance looks like throwing the football, which we still don't really have a full crazy. sample size That is the craziest
0: of, damn thing yeah. in the NFL right now is the 49ers quarterback situation because... Plus, You know, roster spots 2 through 53, they're unmatched, honestly. I think, you know, maybe the Eagles, maybe the Bills are right there with them With when it comes to quality of the roster after quarterback. They can't keep a quarterback healthy. I don't understand. I mean, I got a couple of Niners fans as friends, and, uh, you know, they— they're in agreement that, you know, with Trey Lance, it was just like, you gotta protect this kid. You know, they're running yeah. him, they're they're running him like a fullback, you know. And that's that's the play he got hurt on against against Seattle, just running right up the middle and getting smoked. And uh and then, you know, Brock Purdy pulled their asses out of the fire. I mean, they traded three first-round picks to get Trey Lance, and that is a massive sunk cost if he doesn't end up mm-hmm. being the guy. But they got bailed out by Literally the lowest draft capital you could possibly spend on any player. Is maybe their quarterback of the future is, you know, no one's going to be Tom Brady, but similar kind of idea, just an afterthought, you know, kind of a boring white kid quarterback that all of a sudden is like, oh, he's got the juice, right? Yeah,
1: he's a he's a good setup man. Like he he can get the ball where this is a Kyle Shanahan dream, right? Like absolutely get the ball where it needs to go at the exact right time. That's it. And, and it's not like I'm not, you know, degrading his talent or anything like that. But I think it's a fascinating look at if you have a roster where you've put so many resources into places that are not the quarterback because their quarterback they did put the resources into is not healthy. So if you have a roster with so many of your team's entire ecosystem dependent on every other player on the roster, your quarterback has to be the most complimentary player that yeah. you can dream up that you can envision that you can scheme up because you like it, it you cannot win a super bowl without a quarterback and and i think that it's it's so interesting because it's a fascinating sort of spin on its head it, they use they did so many things that the rams did to win in terms of the picks for players and play, paying players at premium positions and their core and complementary players and i mean hell even the coach's coaches schemes even though they've diverged like come from the same, you know, disgusting room in Washington with you know, beer cans lying everywhere. Like that's that it's so parallel and then all of a sudden with the situation that's unfolded in San Fran with their quarterbacks, it's almost flipped. You know, Sean went out and got the quarterback that he believed would win them the championship and he did. He guessed right on that. Well, with Kyle, it's almost like you thought you were going out and getting the quarterback that would help you win a championship. Then he got, you know. Then he didn't work out the first year, and then Jimmy Garoppolo is still hanging around. And then, oh, he got hurt, and then the other guy got hurt. And now you're on like your fourth guy, and you're playing in the postseason, and everything about your team, including the de- top defense, looks amazing. And it's taught us this lesson, I think, about you know, if it's if the final piece is that you do that you push everything in on is not the right piece. Yes, It's not going to work in the long run. And I think that's, it's a fascinating lesson in team building strategy and structure. And, you know, I hate to, the, the health thing is such a circumstantial, you know, sometimes unavoidable thing, but the structure and the ecosystem, the way that it, it is built and the way that it's, you know, codependent on each other, like that part of it, it doesn't work if you're not at the very least you know, have a guy who can get the ball to the player That's at it. the perfect time. Yeah. That's it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I just, as a football fan, if I didn't have a horse in the race and if my horse wasn't in the same division, you know, purely from that perspective, I want to see what Trey Lance can do. Mm-hmm. I think Trey Lance in that offense is such an exciting prospect because, you know, Shanahan has always won with the Kirk cousins and. The Matt Ryan's and the Jimmy Garoppolo's—you know these pocket passers who are good decision makers. Maybe not the craziest arm talent in the world, but they get the ball where it's supposed to go on time. You know, uh, I think it was Joe Staley who was talking about um, what it's like playing for Kyle Shanahan, and I thought this was so fascinating. I've never heard it said about any other coach. He says he makes the entire game binary. It's ones and zeros. We're not thinking out there. And you know, obviously. I'm sure that doesn't apply. The quarterback has so much information to process, but even that is stripped down to the barest things. You're looking for a specific key from a specific player on the other side. And if he does X, I'm doing Y if he does Y I'm doing X and it takes the thought out of it. And there's such a beauty in that simplicity that I admire so much. And it seems perfect for a guy like Trey Lance, who played, you know, at, at 1AA or FCS, I guess they, they call it, and then sat out his last year because of COVID, basically. Uh, I think he played one game and then didn't really play as a rookie. And it's just like he doesn't have the reps. Like, I don't care how simple you make the system. You just need the reps. I want to see what Trey Lance with the reps is capable of. It'll be super interesting to see if he gets the opportunity this year. You know, the the Brock Purdy injury appears to have created an opportunity there for him. But then they also went out and got Sam Darnold, who is probably a backup at this point in mm-hmm. his career, but a high-profile quarterback as far as backups go and someone that could take the job if Brock Birdie is is not ready to go. I don't even know if Trey Lance is going to be on this roster on opening day.
1: Yeah, it's wild to think about because he has so many of, on paper, he has so many of the gifts that you really would want. In a quarterback, and I agree with you, I think it's just reps, 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 reps. And if you're hurt and you're missing big chunks of time, you can't get those practice reps. You, you're you only basically learning about the theory of the offense. You're not actually learning about the practice of it. And it's uh, – Joe Staley, I love that Joe Staley quote because it's – they call it in, in this system, they call it and, – and now actually it, it's kind of hilarious because pretty much everyone except for the Cardinals who are like off on planet nutso or something like <laughs> – they're on like the Cardinals. are off <laughs> doing who knows what they're doing. Frankly, like uh-huh. they're off in their uh-huh. own on their own planet. But like yep. everyone is, in this division is running the same offense now, essentially, or spinoffs of the same offense. You get Shane Waldron and Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan. They're all. Sp- you know, spin-offs of there, it's like the um they're Russian dolls. It's like Shanahan, and then inside Shanahan is McVeigh, and then you open McVeigh and inside him is Shane Waldron. And it's like they they are it's they call it the illusion of complexity where it's a shared language that is um extremely uh communicatable, I don't know if that's a word, communicable, to um every single skill position as well as the quarterback. And then it interconnects with the offensive line in a very cool and almost like biological way, and um, everything that is done out of that core set of shared, you know, uh, you know, vowels and consonants, essentially a shared language, is look can look so different play to play, but it all starts from the same root language. And I think it's that's really really cool. And for quarterbacks, it's why they can play so fast, and like they are sort of like sometimes known as just being like setup guys in this system because. It is. It's basically like, okay, you know, get ball out of hand and then that's it kind of a thing. And but but it's it's so fascinating because, um, you know, the timing of it, it, it allows them to and the language of it, it allows them to play so free within that structure because you're not thinking about all kinds of different, again, vowels and consonants that have to connect in different ways. Everything already naturally connects. So that's what I think is so fascinating about all of this is you have to actually do it because the timing element is so important to it. It's one thing to know that language. It's another thing to have the timing connect with the language.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, anytime you've got that much juice on a roster, you're going to, there's going to be casualties with just the way the cap is set up and, and San Francisco lost a lot of important role players, but they've still got Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk trent williams and george kittle and fred warner and nick bosa and on and on and on it is insane and then those motherfuckers go out and add javon hargrave are you kidding me
1: (laughs) it's so and steve wilkes it's so cool because i know it's I, i i covered steve uh way back and like i was sitting there and i was like Well, that's just like, it's a cheat code, you know, to have all of these players and then also to add a coordinator of his caliber, like, and, and, you know, basically like you have the best, one of the best DCs, if not the best DC in the league. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well he goes and gets a head coaching job. Fine. We've got Steve Wilkes. We'll bring him in. It's like, come on. So yeah, they're, they're a powerhouse. They're a juggernaut Rams fans. Um, know this and are uh, very, very, I think, rightfully salty about it because of how lopsided they did win the one that mattered. But, you know, how lopsided things have been in, in previous years. And and honestly, that's what's really interesting to me is because at some point the ecosystem breaks um, and it's, it's very, very fragile in its current existence, not because the players themselves are fragile, not because yada, 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 but because it's you can't sustain at that pace, at that level of contention in the modern league um, without extreme outliers at certain premium positions, specifically, and especially quarterback. We saw the Patriots do it, um, but they're very much an outlier. And and the the way that the team, again, is set up and how every position interconnects and how um, they've spent their money, how they spent their draft capital, um, at, at a certain point... You have to say, okay, this is our year to push quite literally everything in and actually yeah. win this because we know the end of this time, the end of this era, whether it's via players aging out, demanding higher contracts, whether it's your cap, whether it's your, you know, something, you know, th- anything. Uh, it, 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 there There is an end a- expiration date, as we've seen now, to this particular method yeah. of team building.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, they, they are an absolute powerhouse right now. And you know, they're, they're the ones that your team and my team are gunning for, but on the complete other end of the spectrum, you've got theirs on a (laughs) Cardinals. They're
1: on, they're on an Island somewhere. (laughs) They're just like,
0: they're
1: out here. (laughs) they're,
0: They're probably one of the five worst run organizations in the league right now. Yeah. And, with the exception of a couple hot starts under Cliff Kingsbury, they really haven't been competitive since Bruce Arians left. They won only four games last year, were among the lowest graded franchises in the recent anonymous players survey. Now, star quarterback Kyler Murray is injured. There are holes everywhere. How far away is this team from being competitive in this division again, and what needs to happen for that to change?
1: Yeah, so the caveat here is I, I worry less about like the coaching staff they've assembled, uh, about some of the current players and then probably some of the future players that they'll go and acquire. I don't really worry about the GM. Um, Monty Austin Ford, I think, is going to be good. Um, it's the owner, right? It's the yep. owner who has been in the news. It's the owner who, by proxy, has been in the news, who, by the way, when his head coach inherited problems that ownership was, you know, sort of enabling... Um, and, and sort of the, the route could have solved these problems before they come, come out in the NFL PA survey, et cetera, et cetera, makes his head coach sit up there who had just been hired three weeks ago,
0: makes his head coach
1: sit up there and address comments and concerns about a building that he's maybe had a cup of coffee in. That's it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me, I'm like, I, so I met Jonathan Gannon for the first time in, at the owners meetings this last year. Um, I'd known of him and sort of through like Brandon Staley, he's really close with, so have talked with Brandon about him quite a bit and how I don't think he is who people think he is. I think it's a little bit of a Sirianni vibe where people maybe will make jokes about him in the short term. And like, frankly, he does look like a 1980s motorcycle cop, so I get it. But like, (laughs) you, like you have to, um, (laughs) He's a very nice man so i'm like it's not an seems like it. it's not an insult it's just like very it. like that you know that no, the we, character. we all got we all got our jokes off that's the we all character got our jokes
0: off on nick sirianni after his yeah, his it's, initial it's press those, conference and now those, here he is yeah
1: exactly and it's those vibes with jonathan gannon where i do think he has the um sort of that mentality and like the ceo style understanding of rosters and teams Um, to be a good head coach, provided he maybe would get, if he would get, you know, the support he needs from the ownership side. I do think he'll have it from the GM side again. I think the GM is, Monty is going to be good. Um, And Gannon is saltier than people think he is. Like Mm -hmm. he, everyone sees the choo-choo-choo clip, which is hilarious. Like very Michael Scott-esque is what the internet said. But like what I think of, especially after having talked to him, And sort of seeing how, like, his mind works a little bit. Like, what I think of more so with him is there's another clip when Philadelphia, um, I forget which team they were playing, but it was an absolute, like, it might have been San Francisco, actually. It was an absolute ass whooping. And someone was videoing Jonathan Gannon driving into the stadium and he rolls down his window and he was like, we're going to fucking kick the shit out of these guys or something like that. Like, pardon, pardon my French. And, like... It was so salty. And I was like, so that's now talking to him. That's actually the guy that I think. Yep. And so with Sirianni, you saw that over time. And I think, and I also know, you know, Nick Rallis, his DC, you know, he hires a 30 year old DC. I'm like, I'm 31. I'm like, I've accomplished nothing. Right. Like he's, Shh, and, and he's, and Rallis is special. Like that guy is special. Um, I, I got to talk to him at some of these coaching incubators um, a couple of years ago when he was sort of like make, rising through the ranks as an assistant. And I think he has got a really, really bright future ahead of him, just the way he sees the whole field. And he takes, already at so young, takes an all 22 approach, even though he's a DC. And, you know, it, it's, I don't worry as much about the coaching staff or the, uh-huh. uh, the, the, the front office outside of the ownership structure. I think that that's where they have run into consistent problems and now it's like, okay, the common denominator is one person here. And so I think, you know, and then you look at the roster and I I don't really know what to even make of their roster because even when Kyler has been healthy, you know, then it was like, well, was, you know, was Cliff Kingsbury holding him back or was he Kyler holding himself back, or like what, you know, it, it's very hard. The whole Cliff yeah. Kingsbury thing
0: is the biggest mystery to me. I mean, that guy couldn't even win games with Patrick Mahomes in the big 12 and then it's like, he's some offensive genius. <laughs> and it's just like the, you know, the, there is a story going around a couple years ago about how like the Cardinals offense is just like a punchline among offensive coordinators around the league. Yeah. And then, you know, Michael Bidwell, the owner of of the Cardinals, stinks. But what he did do now for this reset is go to what I think is the best run organization in the NFL over the last ten years, the Philadelphia Eagles, and he pulled from there. And there is mm-hmm. a culture there that I I think is unmatched in from ownership on down. And you know I I do think that when a team is in as bad a position as the Cardinals have been this last year, two years, you you really do have to make dramatic changes at the top. And, and, you know, you, we've seen so many teams over the years, hire these Belichick acolytes, you know, who come in and they're total assholes to everyone like Belichick is. And then they suck as head coaches, like all oh, the Belichick coaching tree is like terrible <laughs> as head coaches, as far as the win loss record, because what made Belichick great isn't that he was an asshole, it's that he was a the most detailed, brilliant football mind in the head coaching ranks. And that's not what you got with, with his coaches, right? Like you just got the asshole part. And all their players hate him, whether it's McDaniel or Patricia, on and on. With the Eagles, that's not what you get. You know, they're the coaches that have come out of that system in the last decade are player-focused, they have a cohesive approach. It's not this old school, I'm going to run you till you puke to show you how tough I am type of thing. And that can really, especially when you've got a player, you know, Kyler Murray takes a lot of heat, and some of it is very well-deserved. I think he's an exceptional quarterback. I think he's so good. He's so talented. It's so easy to, you know, make the video game jokes or how small he is or whatever. That dude balls, man. And I think that if he... But when you surround a guy like him that maybe, not maybe, that isn't as polished as some of the top quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of leading a team, and the ecosystem around him is so fragile, is so janky, you know this this is what you're going to get. But if Gannon and his staff can create a structure, a little more accountability, a little more cohesiveness, I think we can see Kyler Murray being a top five quarterback as soon as he's healthy.
1: I think what's been really unfair about the whole Kyler conversation too is like now that we have seen the player survey survey, now that we've seen the, um, the stuff that just came out this week about, you know, ownership and, um, we, we tend to blame people for not wanting to come to work or whatever Uh, as a society. I'm not saying this is specifically like, I I can't speak for Kyler or whatever, but like As a society, we tend to blame people for not doing their best work when we fail to question whether that workplace is healthy and functional in the first place. Like, what is the system around the person? Um, Why don't we question that system instead of we now are just questioning the person or the player? And I'm not saying it's that simple. Like, there's a lot of nuance to it, of course. But it's like, why would he want Let's say, hypothetically, that he's, you know, not... At in the workplace as much. He's not in the building. You know, one of his teammates came out uh, and said earlier that he needs to spend more time with his teammates or his, his yeah, and his, and his teammates on the on the roster. Well, have we also asked ourselves, like, is that a place where anyone even wants to be? Like, mm-hmm. let's think about that too. And so I think what Gannon has ahead of him, all, the, all of this to say is to reconstruct a culture where people want to be a part of that space and do their best work within that space. That's what I think he has on his hands at this point. And I think that, um, frankly, I, I think that he probably, in taking the job, would be very aware of it because there were there were also, talk, you know, he could have stayed in Philly. They could have run it back in that way. And so this is yeah. something that you obviously would be very aware of when you're taking the job. And And I do think Kyler is like insanely talented. And I think that sometimes it's like with Cliff Kingsbury, what I often saw in his offense, just watching it, watching the game and watching, you know, knowing, knowing football, it's just like you, you're putting, you're making everybody adjust to what you think your system is. What about some of these offenses that we've seen again, going back to the, the why everybody wants to pick up the Shanahan system? it it maximizes players it it's alive it's malleable it lives and breathes and grows with the players who run it that's enjoyable for them that's what keeps them accountable to themselves to each other to their coaching staff is this thing flourishes and functions as a direct result of the what the players put into it and who they are and what their skill sets are and yeah the head coach can call you know the magic play at the right time or whatever but like a lot of the best stories you hear about this offense, such as the fourth and one Cooper Cup sweep, is like Sean doesn't want to call that because they fucked it up in practice this week. They dropped it. Yep. And they call it on fourth and one in the Super Bowl because Cooper's like, this will work. Mm-hmm. And that's why this offense works. And so it's like you'd see the to- you you'd seen the total opposite with Kingsbury and, and what yes. he was. And it, it's almost like. I have this fancy car, and now I need to drive it everywhere just to drive it because I have this fancy car, and I want everyone to see it.
0: Some, yeah, sometimes like, you got to go off-roading, and you're not going to take the Ferrari to right. do that. Yeah, you know. And and the thing is, is yeah, maybe it was a flashy offense. I just think it was so deeply unimaginative. And that's you know, what I'm saying. It,
1: it was supposed to be the shiny, like, ooh, the game is trickling up from college to the pros, and wow, yeah. and like, no, that's not what this was at all. This was.
0: Well, and to your Shanahan point, you know, when he had when he was the offensive coordinator in Atlanta and he had Matt Ryan and Julio Jones, who's the best downfield receiver since Randy Moss, maybe the best receiver since Randy Moss period. And you've got a big arm in Matt Ryan, he he had the best offense in the NFL throwing it downfield. Mm-hmm. He comes to San Francisco and that's not his personnel. And so he creates an offense around these yak monsters, yeah. right? You know, Debo Samuel is probably the best yards after catch receiver in the NFL. George Kittle is the best yards after catch tight end in the NFL. Uh, The way that they've used their running backs, adding a Brandon Ayuk is about getting the ball in your best player's hands quickly and then letting them do the thing. And, and it's that ability to adapt, that imagination that I think is so necessary. And it's going to be really curious to see if any of that ends up in Arizona because it's going to have to. That team sucks.
1: <laughs> I do love that it, they're such a disaster that I do love that even the Seahawks guy is like nicer about the Rams than like this very obvious <laughs> dumpster fire that is you happening know, in Arizona. And I'm, I do I do think Garrett I I do like I like him. I think he's going to be good there. We'll see. We you know, hasn't played a game yet its March, but like I just it, it's like what you said, the that what he pulled from the Philadelphia organization like and there's some saltiness there. I'm just waiting for it. I want everyone yeah. to see it. Like I'm waiting for everyone yeah. to, to see it. Well, because I think, And it can you know, happen. Yeah. It can
0: happen quickly in the NFL. You know, this isn't baseball where you got to build from the farm system up and it's going to take five to seven years. You can turn NFL team around in a year or two if you do things right. We just saw it with Seattle. We're probably going to see it with the Rams. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen it with so many different teams where you get the right coach, right quarterback, whatever, right ownership in place. And, and it can happen really, really quickly. That does bring us to the Seahawks, who surprised almost everybody, like we talked about earlier this year, by winning nine games, making the playoffs. Like we said, most pundits assumed it was going to be a rebuilding year. Those listening to this show are very familiar with my thoughts on the state of the franchise. So I want to give you the keys, let you drive on this one. From the perspective of someone who covers the NFL at large and a division rival specifically, what are your impressions of the Seahawks?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, obviously I don't have any rooting interest in the team I cover or any of these teams. And so for me, it was like watching from afar, it was like really on a human level, I really admired what happened because everyone, you know, all these, you know, the movies we love as, as, you know, children are all about the people nobody believed in all of a sudden thriving or like, I loved this thing about like Pete Carroll and you know, he's too, you know, he's, he's, he's a dinosaur. And then all of a sudden he's like, you see so much life in him and rejuvenation. Like just as a human, you just are like, you know what? This is a good lesson to learn as a person in life. Right. Like, um, Carol is the man. It's just cool. It's cool. He's, he's fun too. He, um, uh, at the combine this, so there are autographed seekers, autographed seekers who wait in different places at the combine. And Pete was getting swarmed by these autograph seekers. And I was talking to a couple of colleagues standing in the middle of the hallway in one of these convention center hallways. And he literally like saw we were standing there in a small cluster. He used us as like, like he was power walking through and all these autograph seekers are swarming around him. Sign my baby, sign my, you know, my card that I have. (laughs) Sign this, sign that, take a picture. And he's being very friendly. And he literally makes a beeline for our group and like almost uses us to like clog up the traffic and like slips right <laughs> through the middle of our conversation and just takes off. Like he used yeah. us to sort of like clog up the lane essentially. And I was like, uh-huh. that's really smart, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a guy who loves to run the ball because he knows exactly what <laughs> lane to find. And so, but um, anyway, so, but I, I just, I think that on And honestly, I'm serious about this. I do think that Sean learned from watching him from afar it's 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 interesting because it's all, you know, egos and nobody would ever admit it publicly or anything like that. But I do think there was something to be said about a lot of these coaches watching Pete Carroll sort of stay the course and, and believe in what he does and really have that understanding top to bottom of his roster and where it was, where it could go. And I think that GMs across the league can also look at because they came in with, you know, very few in terms of like dart throws resources in the draft, but they nailed every pick. And I think that you're looking at that and how that can just dramatically affect when you are in a rebuild or a retool or a restructure, whatever people call it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I think that you you really, um, if you're watching from the outside, I think there are a few teams last year people really learned from, one being Philadelphia, one being Kansas City, post Juju Smith-Schuster, post Tyreek, um, excuse me, post Tyreek, not just post Tyreek and learn from what they've done and how they would be creative. They learn from what Philly did, how they built their roster, how they reset the books very, very quickly. And honestly, I also think a lot of people around the league learn from what Seattle did last year because it shows you that good, really, really good fundamental coaching, really good um, scheme And especially on the offensive side. And a quarterback, I mean, I loved the Geno story, too. Rams fans listening to this, like, they're probably like, oh, my God, now she's just gushing about Seahawks. But, like, seriously, that was, as a human, that was freaking awesome. I mean, I'm so happy for him as a person. I was sitting there, I'm watching, I'm just like, everybody's having their sort of, like, um, post midlife crisis resurgence over there. Like everyone's, everyone's sitting there. They're like in their golden age or their golden era or whatever, like that you get when you, you've gone through some shit <laughs> in your life. Absolutely. And then you, and then, and I just thought too, like the way they, there's, there's so much to be said about some of these fundamental things in football, a quarterback who gets it together, um, a, a head coach who really is a really, really good coach, who um, has let his coordinators sort of cook a little bit. Um, And that this defense that they, I mean, people forget too, they totally overhauled their defense last year in terms of scheme. They're now running some of those Saban-inspired, Fangio-inspired, cover six, match zone concepts. And like, this is Pete Carroll. What do you mean he can't adjust?
0: Well, He's not even running his own
1: defense anymore.
0: I'm (laughs) I'm, I'm guilty of this because, you know, (laughs) Two years ago, when it started to become clear that the Russell Wilson-Pete Carroll relationship wasn't going to last Shout forever. out to Michael
1: <laughs> Sean Dugar, by the
0: way, who Absolutely. was on that
1: first before anyone else. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, he was. And and we talked with him about that very, very early on. And uh, and then off air had a very, <laughs> very revealing conversation. And, you know, it, so, so I started to kind of prepare myself for that. And I found myself saying, man, why are you going to choose the 70-year-old coach over the 32-year-old quarterback? What why are you doing that? And I I banged that drum a little too loudly. Uh, but it was it was honest, you know, it was mm-hmm. how I felt in the moment. I couldn't have been more wrong. You know, I underestimated the value of the culture that Pete Carroll has built. And and I shouldn't have. You know, he Pete Carroll has been really inspirational and informative to me as I built my own business. I read win forever and ended up putting his version of the pyramid of success up framed on my wall, looked at it every day, like the way that he has approached building his football programs. This is a guy that is not only one of the most accomplished football coaches of all time. If you're counting what he did in college. Also, this is a guy that gets hired by fortune 500 companies to go talk to their upper management about building culture. I mean, this is, this is a guy who's, um, influence transcends just the sport that he coaches in. And I sold that short. I didn't know that he could adapt and he did. This was a completely different team. It's a different offense. It's a different defense. It's a different personnel structure than what they've had for many, many years. And, and I, I got to tip my hat and just say, man, Pete, as long as you want to coach, man, you're my coach.
1: That's cool. Yeah. He, I just think like I get it on the offensive side. He's always had this like fundamental belief in um, maybe a little bit more of an old school approach, but the coordinator he hired doesn't run the Mm -mm. offense that way. I mean, there's Mm -mm. balance there, which was really apparent in the way that they ran the ball and in the way that Gino really thrived on some of that timing stuff and some of the play action stuff. And like really, really, I think was, there was a lot of, of cohesion to it. And and that's what they really mean by, you know, marrying the run in the past when they talk about it within the Shanahan system, like that's what that looks like right there. Um, and yeah. then like the, on the defensive side, what I found, what I think in hindsight should have been the most revealing thing about, um, the narrative about Pete Carroll, like aging out versus the reality of what was happening behind the scenes, which was, him sort of reinventing himself a little bit on the fly while keeping some of the fundamentals the same was when they did switch to that sort of Fangio system, quote-unquote, um, corporate. And, and they run a little bit more of, like, the college-style version of that, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and it's a defense that... you It's not going to look good right away. Like, it's going to be... It, it, it's a defense... Players, it's, it's a very uh, complex language, and it's also... A player has to get used to the fact that you're being asked to do something in terms of some of the shell concepts in the match zone. You're being asked to do something that um, sort of goes against what you think you're supposed to be doing in football. Like you're supposed to come down from depth over the top of routes instead of match from start to finish of the route. You're supposed to pattern match. You're supposed to, um, you know, play gap and a half to two gap instead of single gap. Like you're supposed to do these types of things that sort of, it's tough to pivot like that and fully buy in over the course of one off season. And that's what's always been so interesting about this particular defensive ethos is as time passes, it gets better. And you can really start to see the moments when players take control of it. The Rams, when they started the season, when the Rams first installed it in 2020, um, they were always going to be a really good defense regardless of what they ran. They had Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald and, you know, in, in their prime, and Darius Williams was playing really well and all this stuff, and Leonard Floyd in his 10, 12 sack season, all that. So they were always, but but in this specifically, at first you could see it was like, oh, this looks a little looser than what we thought. This looks maybe not quite there. And then as games went on, they became this like totally dominant unit back in 2020. And yep. um, Seattle, it was interesting because, you know, you're, you're Pete Carroll. It, you're, first of all, you're asking him to shift into the new era of defensive football when he started the previous era. So it's like yeah. he yes. he was the guy who said, and you guys, you guys know this. I'm not saying anything nobody knows. No, he like,
0: built the blueprint. He, he
1: built the blueprint for the, what the previous era of football was that actually, in a way, spawned the McVay-Shanahan era because that offense was the best thing to beat the Pete Carroll system the single high those types of things with those crossers that they ran and then out of that offense comes Fangio who just kicks their doors down and is like actually you cannot do anything against my defense by the way and it sucks to play against and we're gonna I'm gonna mind you just get in your head all day and then that Sean McVay's like I want that then Sean McVay grabs that And matches it with his own offense so he can workshop against it and troubleshoot against it as a control group in his own house instead of having to play against it. It's fucking rad, man. I love this. And so (laughs) like, and so then Pete, so now this, now all these other teams across the league are matching McVeigh Shanahan with Fangio Staley on the the offense for the former and the defense for the latter in-house so they can troubleshoot against the system in their own house. And so Pete Carroll, who's like, well, you know, the godfather of the original like era, this, this, this last do- dominant dynamic era of football, essentially, now he's like, okay, I've got to make a choice here. I'm either going to mm-hmm. go in this direction that the league is taking and I'm going to put my own spin on it and again, have my coaching foundation and fundamentals, but I'm also going to adopt this new scheme that is not like mine at all, my old one at all but it's what works in the modern league. And, you know, going to probably ask himself to give up some ego, to give up some pride. It's like a prideful thing. And and to basically adopt someone else's fingerprints. And so I think that should have been what told us about what this year was going to be with Seattle over anything else, over the Russell Wilson move, over anything, is Pete Carroll deciding to do that. Because that was, I'm going to put... The team first, and I'm gonna do that because it's the right thing to do in the arc of the modern league. And so that's him. To me, that says everything about whether or not he's like wanting to modernize or anything. Because that's the maybe the most modern thing in terms of his own ethos and personality. That's maybe the most modern decision, the most progressive decision he could have made right there. Um, And then stepping back and letting his coordinators and having the patience to let this thing mature into sort of what it now will become over the next couple of years um i think that that was really really telling um if we're looking at this like a movie plot or something like that was the foreshadowing moment right there the big character decision and i think that that that's that's what like when you asked me about what i think about the seahawks honestly like i think they're a really good football team but that's the shit i'm interested in like that's really really cool to me that they've consciously decided to do that as a group and they all bought into it, which is really interesting. Well,
0: and, and the buy, the buy-in is huge and it's just, it's so cool to get, you know, I, I don't, I don't think this is maybe the best word, but an outsider's opinion of this, because, you know, we get so close to it talking and writing about this team that, uh, you know, I'm always fascinated whenever we get people with a national perspective on, like, what do, what are you guys seeing from the outside in, and uh, and that's that's really cool. I really like how you put that in terms of character development. Now, listen, I I can already tell you and I could talk ball for like four hours. <laughs> so I do want to do one last little exercise before we wrap up, and and this is going to be super rapid fire. I think predictions at this point in the calendar are a little silly, especially before the draft. So I'm not going to ask you to like rank which teams are going to win the most games cool. or, or whatever. <laughs> but I do want you to rank them in a few key areas. You down?
1: Yes, sure. Okay. And also to your listeners... When I get really fired up about football stuff, I st- I did I did cuss a lot. And I'm so sorry about that. But it Dude, seems like uh, this is a chill are, podcast. So <laughs> we,
0: we are a, a, a French-friendly podcast here. No, speak speak your truth, however it comes out. Love it. Love that you're fired up about it. I'm fired up about it. But I want to start. We're gonna go. We're gonna go high-level views of these teams. I want you to rank them one through four in each of these categories. We're gonna start with defense.
1: Wait, wait. Is four the best or the worst?
0: Four is the worst.
1: Okay. So wait, so it's like uh ranking them like uh as a full team, not like as saying a full a one team. through ten. Okay, I got it. Okay, cool.
0: So so yeah, so like for the defense, for example, for the defense, I would go 49ers 1, Rams okay, 2, Seahawks 3, Cardinals 4.
1: Okay. I, so you're asking defense? Yep. Okay, 49ers, Seahawks, Rams, Cardinals.
0: Okay. Okay. And I'll be curious to see what the Rams defense looks like. I, I I would like to be bullish on the Seahawks defense taking a big leap forward. It would have to be a pretty big leap forward, though. They did have a stretch in the middle of the season where they were like lights out on defense. And then that got figured out and they spent the rest of the season <laughs> trying to counterpunch and, and were never able to do it. So I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I got the Rams just a touch ahead of the Seahawks right now. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're right. They all don't
1: right. have a, the reason I put the Rams there is they don't have a full roster. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's
0: so fair. Like, it's That's like, fair. all
1: right. Sounds good. We'll, like, we'll yeah. revisit this closer <laughs> to the season. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. All right. Now I want to go to the offense, non QB. Okay. Everybody else, except the QB rank, the offenses, uh,
1: 49ers, Seahawks, Rams, Cardinals.
0: Okay. So yeah. same, same, same order. I, yeah. I, I would, I would too. Um, I did not see myself ranking the Seahawks above the Rams anytime in the next few years on offense. But uh, there's, two, there's I'm, just so I'm right many unknowns
1: with, with the Rams for me. There, I'm like, there are, you know, that's are. that's the reason why. So Rams fans Seattle's offense good <laughs>
0: last year. Yeah, that's they were the thing. and they were
1: balanced. I think that was the most important thing. The Rams, even when the Rams were firing at full cylinder, even when they won the Super Bowl. They had no balance on offense. They had no run game. Yep. So yep. I'm going to have to see more balance from them for this thing to actually like have some substance totally. to it.
0: And the, the Seahawks got some dogs now, too. I mean, Geno was a top eight quarterback by just about any metric you look at last year. Kenneth Walker is a super exciting rookie. You obviously have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. They had the two rookie tackles last year who were lights out. I mean, they're, they are looking good. Long way to go to get to the 49ers, though, I think. Agree. All right. So now we're going to zoom in on quarterback only. Rank the four quarterbacks in this division. <laughs>
1: oh my god! Well, I do think if Stafford comes back healthy, I'm going to put him at one. Okay. Um, I'd put Geno at two. Kyler again, the injury. So I kind of, I don't. He's not going to be healthy. Let's
0: assume for this. Let's let's go fully healthy. Kyle. Fully just, healthy. Just for the sake fully of. Fully the- healthy.
1: Okay. I'm going to probably do. I'd probably do Stafford, Geno. Um, uh, probably put Kyler at three and whoever yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Darnold, Lance, Purdy at four. And again, a lot of that's from the unknowns of it all, but um, yeah. and and like that's the thing is I do think Kyler is so talented. I think Gino really showed us what he's capable of, but. I've seen Matthew Stafford do some of the craziest Stafford's stuff the man. I've ever seen in my life Stafford's with his arm. Man. It's like the first his, time
0: his s- no-look oh. throw with that's like the throw in NFL oh. history to me in the Super Bowl 2 minutes left.
1: Okay, so I do have do you have time for a quick story? I have a Course. really fun story. So, training camp right after they signed him. So, this is obviously the year they went out and won the Super Bowl. But like I'm standing in training camp and we have really close access unlike OTAs where we're kind of back from the field a little bit more. Um, at training camp, you could stand like right at the corner of the end zone. So they're doing a live period and it's uh, seven on seven and they're doing red zone. And I'm standing at the back corner of the end zone and um, I'm watching this sort of really intense live period unfold because it's they They, they do these things called Mamba sessions where they go full out hundred percent, like against each other, no tackle obviously, but like, they're expected to install these live reps and it's the first time it's including OTAs that they are doing a live session and Matthew Stafford and the first team offense are working against Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, the first team defense and it's Jalen on Cooper and it's very, very cool, like vibes. Oh, and man, yeah. so um, Jalen, the first throw that Matthew makes, he um, Jalen breaks it up. It's to Cooper on the far corner. And it's just a, you know, Cooper did a little, the first iteration, remember that move he did that he added a third, uh, a fake to that, uh, that route that he ran. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it was like the little spin off the Hunter Renfro route that he did. Yep. And then he added a third move. That's why he added the third move was cause Jalen broke up the path is that
0: called a chicken something. Route something, or something? It's something cool. Yeah. I
1: forget what it is at this. I wrote a whole story about it and I can't even think of it right now, but like the, um, so he breaks up the pass. So then I see them, they sort of convene and they're semi-no-huddle, trying to go a little tempo. Matthew has this like, sort of like demon take over him at this point. Like, I don't think he was on our physical plane with us. Wow. And wow. so he, and it's similar to like what happened in Tampa Bay and like all this stuff where he's like been fully taken over by something, right? Yeah. And so then he sets up Cooper on the opposite side, um, touchdown. Then he, um, sets up, um, he sets up the running back, Daryl Henderson. He hits him on a little, like, just a little wheel over the top and, and gets him for another touchdown back to back. Then he sends them both on the same exact route concepts combined that they, like, Daryl still ran the wheel and Cooper ran the corner. And they, he sets them both up at the same time to do those things. And he's staring down Daryl over the top and he instead throws to the corner, the end zone, far end zone corner where I'm standing to Cooper for the touchdown as he's staring down Daryl over That's the top. It was the crazy. first no look pass I've ever seen in my life in person. And I screamed. Holy fucking shit <laughs> in the end zone. And you're not supposed to like talk right, or yeah, speak yeah. or be a part of it. You're like, you're unbiased. And it was like it was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life to that Stafford's point. Stafford's the man. And I was I, like, oh my God, they yeah. they're gonna go win this thing. That was when I knew. I was like, that, okay, they're gonna go he's win this like thing.
0: The perfect microcosm of you know, I think similar with Kyler, like Stafford was first overall pick like he's total stud in Detroit, but the franchise was booty. So it's just like, oh yeah, he puts up lots of yards, whatever. He's never going to win anything. It's like, oh yeah, go go put him in a team that's actually positioned to win that has that culture, and and you saw it, you know. Um, so I I actually, if we're assuming full health, peak of their abilities for all these quarterbacks, I'm going Kyler number one.
1: Oh wow, I, yeah, I think I Kyler, get that. Yeah,
0: I think Kyler is the most talented quarterback in this division. Um, I'm going to go Stafford two. I think Stafford is borderline Hall of Fame, depending on how he finishes out this mm-hmm. career. Um, I think he's definitely going to be in consideration. Go Gino three, and then 49ers quarterback four. Whoever uh, it
1: is. <laughs> but but I
0: I do think whether it's Purdy or if Lance is good enough to beat out Purdy, I, I think you're talking about four very good quarterbacks yeah, in this division.
1: agree. I like your Kyler take too, because I, I, I'm with you on that one. Like, I think he can be absolutely brilliant um, if, you know, he's healthy and he's set up in the right in the right environment for sure.
0: Yep, yep. Okay, last one, head coach.
1: Oh man, uh, that's really hard actually. I mean, the Cardinals are last, sorry to Jonathan And I Hammond. want you to
0: frame this as if like, you, you are the uh, GM or the owner yeah. Of a franchise and all four of these guys are competing. They're you're they're your four finalists. How are you ranking them on your big board? Yeah. You can hire whichever one you want.
1: I am probably gonna put McVeigh first. Again, when mm-hmm. he's functioning at all cylinders, I think he's pretty unmatched in terms of um how he brings everybody up with him. Um and and has the machine goes as he goes, essentially, which I think is really interesting. Um, I'd probably put this is hard. I'd probably put Shanahan's second, um, with no disrespect to Pete Carroll, who I just gushed over for like many, many minutes. Of course,
0: but oh, because of
1: the because of the offensive shift, like they're running these premier systems, um, and their teams are so reflective of their dominance in the offensive era of football that I think those two are a pretty close one and two in my mind. Um, Pete, I think, should have his own category for like, you know, because of the culture. He's thing. like a godfather. Yeah, I think the culture thing is so cool. Um, and I don't know what. I mean, I, 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 have guesses about what Gannon will be like as a head coach. Um, we have to see it yet. But I. We're put talking him,
0: about three of the best. I'm coaches gonna put him four. In, yeah, he's he's in gonna a tough. He's got a yeah, tough hill to climb
1: here. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does.
0: I, I am gonna go with uh, McVay one. Also, I just. I just think he is living on, on the cutting edge. I He's so young. I, I have all the faith in the world that he'll figure this thing out. Um, so I'm going to go McVay 1. Anyone who reads my stuff or listens to podcasts know how heavy I am on vibes, on the intangibles. And and for me, it's Kyle Shanahan is a better X's than O's coach. Mm-hmm. No question. In my mind. Pete Carroll and what he's built, the buy-in he gets from his players, the juice that he brings – the life coaching aspect of it, the big picture stuff, the fun, the energy. For me, he's he's actually a pretty close number two. Shanahan right behind him. Again, he's got everything McVeigh offers from a X's and O's standpoint. He just just terrible vibes, man. Just <laughs> just awful vibes. I mean, here he is. He's got the most juiced up roster in the NFL. And they're you know coming out to Kodak Black before every game, carrying the boom box, and they're just fired up. And he's sitting there, flat bill, pulled down low, (laughs) play sheet up in front of his face. Seems like he doesn't know how to talk to his players. Whatever. He's he's brilliant. He's great. Any team would be lucky to have him. He's number three for me. And then we'll see what Gannon is.
1: Kyle Shanahan is like the NFL's, like, goth coach. He's like, (laughs) he's like... He's like, I think that's good balance. You know, I guess he's he's goth. He's like, he doesn't know if we're all going to be alive tomorrow. Like
0: totally. He's sort
1: of got that like very sort of austere, uh, deeply, deeply considering, um, my existence on this plane. Yeah. Just the existential
0: dread. Yeah. Whereas Pete (laughs) Pete Carroll is just like, see the rosy side of everything. Yeah. (laughs) Which
1: I love. I love the the balance. And Sean, I think has, as he's matured, has turned into a combination of both. Yes. I agree. The problem last year was that he fluctuated so much so that was the issue but it's funny because if you blended Kyle and Pete together I think you come out with Sean so it's like that's probably true it's really interesting to me that's probably true and that's
0: probably why he's number one for both of us (laughs) Jordan this has been an absolute treat thank you so much for stepping behind enemy lines to join us lend your thoughts on what promises to be another strong year for this division thank you again
1: yeah, it was my pleasure. Um, I was stoked to be here. This was so much fun. Again, sorry for all the cursing. No, um, please but, do not apologize. Um, yeah, this stuff. I just love talking about all this stuff and thank I you for tell. giving me the space to ramble a little bit. I appreciate you.
0: Of of course, of <laughs> course. I wouldn't let you do it if it didn't make the show better and you you absolutely <laughs> did. Before we get out of here, where can the folks listening find more of you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jordan Rodrigue, uh, last name, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E. Um, you can find me on The Athletic. Um, I write a lot about the Rams and I also write big picture, NFL, enterprise and features. So whether you're clicking the NFL page, you're clicking my author page or the Los Angeles Rams page, which I understand Seahawks fans if you're not really doing that so much, um, that's where you can find me um, Always, always working on something. So excited for this next year.
0: Awesome, awesome. All right, friends, that does it for today. Make sure you're adding Jordan to your follows in order to get more excellent insight from her. And you guys, this show has got some extremely exciting developments coming your way in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that as we get closer to the draft. As for us, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is OK when spelling my name. Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawk Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at FieldGoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave a quick review. Thank you to all y'all for your continued support of this show. We know you've only got so much time for podcasts and such. It's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing the show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends.